So this season in the life of our church, we are focusing on getting the gospel right in order to get the gospel out. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of his life and death and resurrection and soon return, that message is simple enough for a child to understand and embrace. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Christ died and he rose again so that we could come into a new relationship with the living God by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is the gospel, and it is that simple. If we were to liken the message of the gospel to a swimming pool, what we could say is that the gospel has waters that run shallow enough on one end for children to wade into and to enjoy. At the same time, like many swimming pools, this gospel swimming pool also has a deep end. And as we press further into the waters of Christ crucified and risen, what we learn is that the gospel has depths. This message is so profound that we can literally immerse ourselves in it our entire lives and our feet will never reach the bottom of it. We begin our Christian lives in the shallows of the gospel and yet as we grow in Christ, we are beckoned out into the deeps. And our study so far of the free church statement of faith, I hope has demonstrated that for us. Remember, we believe in gospel-shaped doctrine in this church because what we have is a gospel-shaped Bible, remember? We believe the gospel originates in and expresses the wondrous perfections of the eternal triune God. We also believe that the gospel is authoritatively revealed in the scriptures. Furthermore, we believe that the gospel alone addresses our deepest human need. And that brings us to where we are today, to the big idea this morning. This week and next, we are focusing on the absolute centerpiece of the gospel, what we believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's a topic so vital and so important that we'll take two weeks to unfold it, and we'll still just be scratching the surface of it. So let's begin this week with what we believe about Jesus. We believe that the gospel is made known supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. We believe that the gospel is made known supremely in the purpose, person of Jesus Christ. So the gospel originates with God. The gospel is authoritatively revealed in the scriptures. The gospel alone addresses our deepest human need, but the gospel is made known supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greatest news this world has ever heard. We believe that the gospel is made known supremely in the person of Jesus. That is, that he is the gospel unveiled and on display and exhibited for all to see. Jesus is the manifestation of the gospel. So would you follow along with me as I read from Article 4 of the Pre-Church Statement of Faith? You can take your hand out and just open it up and, and you'll see the text of today's sermon. Article 4, EFCA Statement of Faith. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus 
Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. So we believe that the gospel is made known supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. Why do we believe that? Three reasons, six maybe, uh, that we draw out of our statement of faith. We'll take three pairs. Reason number one, Christ's incarnation and conception illustrate the wonder of the gospel. Christ's incarnation and conception illustrate the wonder of the gospel. Now, it's, it's obviously critical that a human being uh, hear and understand the truth of the gospel in order to be saved. I don't think we would deny that. The facts of the gospel, the actuality of the gospel. And yet, if we would be truthful and honest to the teaching of Holy Scripture, it is paramount that we begin to consider some additional categories of thought as it relates to our confession of faith in Jesus. Categories like, oh, amazement and astonishment and awe, for starters, or what we're simply calling wonder here. Christ's incarnation and conception, they illustrate for us the wonder of the gospel. So the first phrase in Article 4, the pre-church statement of faith, we believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. That's a weighty statement. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ is God with skin on. The historic creeds of the Christian church echoed throughout this article are here. I I hope you hear them if you grew up in a more liturgical church. That is intentional. We have no interest in novelty or originality as it relates to our movement in the EFCA. Article 1 of our statement of faith, we confess belief in the doctrine of the Trinity, that is, that we believe that God exists in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here in Article 4, we confess that 2,000 years ago, the second person of the Trinity stepped into space and time and became one of us. He became something in his incarnation that he never was before, namely human. Behold the mystery of the incarnation of God the Son. Remaining what he was, that would be God, he became what he was not previously, and that would be human. God became man. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, assumed a fully human nature. And though it's a little early yet, I don't know how soon you begin the music of the Christmas season in your house. We try to hang on at least until the middle of November. Soon enough, we'll be singing some of these songs. And my favorite line in all of our many Christmas carols was penned by John Sullivan Dwight in 1855. Marveling at the truth of the incarnation in O Holy Night, he said, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. (laughs) That is a staggering reality. 
in Jesus and Jesus alone, the human soul has felt the worth of what it means to be a soul. So we believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God, fully man, one person in two natures. He's a real man. He was born, he aged, he grew weary, he knew hunger and thirst, he suffered, he learned things. The Bible, as a matter of fact, says he learned through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus is a real man. And of course, he, he died, which we will examine in point two. Jesus is a real man. And yet, Jesus isn't just any man, because the Bible, without blinking, affirms his divinity as well. In John 10, the Jewish leaders are cross-examining Jesus and his teaching, and they call it blasphemy. Why? They're ready to stone him because in their words, they say, you, being a man, make yourself God. Philippians 2.6, Jesus knew equality with God. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He knew equality with God. He was familiar with his equality with God. Colossians 2.9 proclaims that in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Romans 9.5, Paul calls Jesus God over all. That's his name for Jesus in Romans 9.5, God over all. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God, fully man, one person in two natures. We believe in the incarnation in this church, but we don't stop there. Our statement of faith not only affirms the wonder of the incarnation, but the wonder of his very conception. Second article, or, or sorry, the second sentence of article four says, Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now it's, it's tempting for me to derail the entire sermon and want to seize upon that phrase, Israel's promised Messiah. Um, in the interest of time, we have to hasten on. It, it, Except to say this, that in this last year and a half of my life, I've had such an awakening to God's love for his covenant people, the Jews. I'll at least say this, uh, the Jewishness of Jesus matters. It matters. It matters in relationship to the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, but also to the future of biblical prophecy. When Christ returns, which he will, and we affirm in Article 9 of our Statement of Faith, when he returns, he will do so as a Jew who will one day rule the world. One day, a Jew will rule the world. And he'll rule this earth from his favorite city, the city of David, Jerusalem. I oftentimes, uh, playfully, talk with people who haven't thought through the return of Jesus very clearly, and I'll say, do you believe in the return of Jesus? They'll say, yes. I say, visibly, bodily? Yes, yes. And I say, where? Where are those feet going to land? And then I'll suggest Sheboygan. And they say, couldn't be. Detroit, less likely. Where would he go? The Mount of Olives, Jerusalem. So he'll rule this earth from Jerusalem. And not only that, but one day we'll see a future massive conversion of these Jewish people. Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah, not just in the past, but in the future. Now, let's look at his conception. We believe that Jesus was conceived through the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. I, I hope that still awakens worship in your soul. 
Isaiah 7.14 contains the prophecy, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 announced the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus was conceived by the power of Almighty God in the womb of a teenage girl. An unmarried teenage girl. Our free church leadership wonderfully captures the awkward truth of this in the first century as they write this, quote, the virgin birth, as it is portrayed in the Gospels, is not, simply the, is not simply the kind of story that the early Christians would have made up. From the earliest days, stories were circulating about the illegitimacy of the birth of Jesus. And such Christians would have been foolish to throw fuel on the fire by preserving a story like this, unless, of course, it was true. And there's just no help for it. It's true. And there's no doubt that that was the word on the street about Jesus, that he was an illegitimate child. In John 8, 41, the Pharisees are cross-examining Jesus, and they say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, implying that Jesus was. Because they all knew Joseph wasn't the father. (laughs) And yet, Scripture tells a different story. It's the story of a miraculous, wonderful, unique virgin conception Theologian Donald McLeod has made one of the greatest statements about the scandal of this miracle, and he says it this way. The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas, and none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, There is no point in proceeding any further. You may be with us today and you affirm the truth of the gospel. I'm asking you something different. Are you swept up in the wonder of it all? God became a baby. Hmm. Be staggered by it. Christ's incarnation and conception illustrate the wonder of the gospel. And don't let that wonder fade. I remember when I first became a Christian... My stepsister, Amy, along with the rest of my family, was wondering what in the world was going on with me. And she sat me down on her couch and she said, what, what's happening with you? What, what do you believe these days? And I didn't have the theological categories for it, but I just said to her, God entered into a man's body, which isn't quite exactly right. But uh, she said, I said, that's it's worth getting excited about. And she said, yeah, of course that is worth getting excited Yeah. And if that doesn't move you, I might suggest that Revelation 2.5 is a key text. Perhaps you have lost the love that you had at first. Your first love. Christ's incarnation and conception illustrate the wonder of the gospel. Second, Christ's crucifixion and resurrection reveal the heart of the gospel. Christ's crucifixion and resurrection reveal the heart of the gospel. Middle portion of the third sentence of Article 4, we read, He, Jesus, was crucified under Pontius Pilate and arose bodily from the dead. Friends, this is the focal point. Let's not bury our lead in our understanding of the gospel. 
This is the climax of our entire confession of faith. We learned over Labor Day weekend that there are many Christian doctrines a believer can make it all the way to heaven without knowing, but the gospel is not one of them. The heartbeat of the gospel is not one of those doctrines that we can barter away. Here as we consider the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord, we find ourselves at the very heart of it all. Put simply, without the cross or the empty tomb, there is no good news. In fact, it's just bad news. Without the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus merely takes his place alongside any other religious leader in the history of this world. Apart from the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus is no different than Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, or Oprah. Unless Jesus truly died on that cross and really rose again on the third day, the gospel's not good news. It is bad news. And so we must face the question of history. And it's here where we find that our faith is explicitly rooted in history. Our statement of faith proclaims he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Do you know that this is an event that is not seriously questioned by any reputable scholar on the face of this earth? Historian, any historian, believer or unbeliever, will tell you Pontius Pilate was the governor of the Roman province of Judea during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Historical sources from outside the New Testament place the reign of Tiberius between A.D. 14 and A.D. 37. Pilate governed Judea during 26 to 36 A.D. And it was during this space of time that Jesus of Nazareth ministered and was crucified. The death of Jesus on a Roman cross is not simply a matter of New Testament faith. It's a matter of public historical record. New Testament scholar from 100 years ago, J. Gresham Machen, put it well when he said, a gospel independent of history is a, is a contradiction in terms. It is true the Christian gospel is an account not of something that happened yesterday, but of something that happened long ago. But the important thing is, it happened. <laughs> the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth is not simply a conviction of personal piety. It's actually the confession of secular history. Now, what about the resurrection? Well, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is clearly the unambiguous claim of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul sums up the non-negotiability of the resurrection this way in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that he raised Christ. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, granted what all parties agree on, which is that the tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea was empty, three days after Jesus' body was laid to rest there, we, we can start there and grant that. That much is agreed upon. The historical question is simply, what's the best explanation for the empty tomb? 
And while some in the 21st century may scoff at the notion of a dead man being raised to life, let us not forget this was not a truth any easier for a first century individual to respond to either. Neither Jews nor Greeks of the first century were, were prepared to sign off on the concept of bodily resurrection, although the Jews should have been because the Old Testament teaches it. This is a terribly inconvenient reality that the New Testament simply refuses to do away with. Think about, too, just the, uh, the way that the gospel accounts occur. All four gospel accounts tell us that women, not men, were the ones that found him at the tomb. They were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And once again, this is nothing but trouble for a first century resurrection account. Like Timothy Keller argues, quote, each gospel states that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. Women's low social status meant that their testimony was not admissible evidence in court. There was no possible advantage to the church to recount that all of the first witnesses were women. It could have only undermined the credibility of the testimony. The only possible explanation for why women were depicted as meeting Jesus first is that they really had. There must have been an enormous pressure on the early proclaimers of the Christian message to remove the women from the early accounts. They felt they could not do so. The records were already too well known. Now, we could go along similar lines of evidence for the New Testament, uh, if you get my drift, but the, the Gospels are riddled with claims that are both inconvenient and disadvantageous for the preaching of the Gospel in the Christian church. From the stubborn unbelief of the disciples to the specific details of the story of Jesus that ring with authenticity in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the death of the resurrection of Jesus and his resurrection, even those accounts stand up to scrutiny. Now next week we'll talk about precisely what occurred on that cross in the atonement, the work that Christ did in this death to earn our salvation. For now we just want to set the table by grounding it in reality, in space-time history. May we never forget it. It's the centerpiece of our worship, our singing, our message, and our lives. Have you embraced Jesus, the true historical Jesus, as your Lord and your Savior and your treasure? Or if not, what's, what's keeping you? Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. Are you lost this morning? You can be found. And you can be found by turning from your sin definitively and putting your faith in Him. Today is the day of salvation. You can be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. His death and resurrection is the only ground of our acceptance before a holy God. Come to Jesus. He died and rose again so that you would. Christ's crucifixion and resurrection reveal the heart of the gospel. One final point today. Christ's perfection and ascension announce the hope of the gospel. Christ's perfection and ascension announce the hope of the gospel. Let's begin with perfection. We have to go back into the middle of the statement of faith, which confirms, confesses, that Jesus lived a sinless life. 
Jesus lived a sinless life. That's what we believe in this church. The Bible unambiguously teaches the utter sinlessness of the person of Christ. But here's what we need to understand. The Bible does not teach this truth with reference to his divinity. We often think, and we make the mistake of saying that, well, sure Jesus was sinless. He was God. And that's just not how the New Testament presents it, although he was God and is God. The Bible teaches his sinlessness with reference to his humanity every time. Here's a sampling. John 8, 46, Jesus says to the Jews who had strong suspicions of him, he said, which of you convicts me of sin? And we find that he's met with absolute quietness. There's no answer. They don't answer him. They can't put their finger on a single sin. John 15.10, speaking to his disciples in the upper room, Jesus says something to them that not a single human being other than Jesus could say. In John 15.10, Jesus says, I have kept my Father's commandments. Have you? <laughs> I haven't. That verse trips off our tongue all too quickly. Can you even imagine a person claiming this? He's talking about all 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law, every command of the one true God, and he says he measures up to the directives and orders of Almighty God. Without blinking, he says, I have kept my Father's commandments. When he's standing before Pontius Pilate, John 18, 38, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Pilate was ready to cut him loose. This isn't interesting, by the way, um, what Pilate knew about Jesus. Jesus, uh, Jesus is a real man. John 19, 5, Jesus is called, he, Pilate says to him, behold the man. In John 19, 4, he just confesses something unique about him, that he's a perfect man. I find no guilt in him. Well, those are snapshots of his life. Consider the mature reflection of the disciples throughout the pages of the New Testament. Acts 3.14, Peter calls Jesus the holy and righteous one. Romans 8.3, Paul says that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. That's a fascinating statement. The likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. We already know that Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors believe that Jesus was a real man. The flesh and blood reality of Jesus is not a question. And so he says he's in the likeness of sinful flesh. So he's saying that Jesus' flesh wasn't actually sinful. Paul did not believe that Jesus was a sinner. That's no more clear than in a text like 1 Corinthians 5.21. 1 Corinthians 5.21 where he writes, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Only a sinless man could bear the sins of humanity and the sacrifice of atonement. And then we have the epistles of the, he of, of, uh, the, epistle of the Hebrews, uh, 1 Peter, 1 John. All of these capture uh, the sinlessness of Jesus. I'll give us maybe one more verse. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was in every respect tempted as we are and yet without sin. Uh, one more, 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. So what does all this mean? Why is that hopeful to us? 
It's hopeful to us in what we ought to expect of our Christian lives, our lives as human beings following Jesus. Why did Jesus become a man? The church father Irenaeus put it this way. Jesus Christ, in his infinite love, became what we are in order to make us entirely what he is. Jesus Christ became what we are in order to make us entirely what he is. Now, plenty of New Testament texts teach this. I'll just offer one, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 18 is speaking of what it means to behold Jesus and be transformed. Paul says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, his perfection, his sinlessness, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is how life works. What you behold, you become. What you behold, you become. And if you behold Jesus for a lifetime, you'll become just like him. Incrementally transformed into his image. This is hope-giving. Jesus Christ was sinless. That's hopeful to us because one day we will be too. Second reason that this is hopeful to us related to his ascension is this, that the bodily absence of Jesus Christ from this earth is hopeful. Why? Well, we believe in our Article 4, it says, we believe that Jesus ascended into heaven And he sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. Why is that hope-giving? I'll give us three applications as we close. First, when Christ ascends, the Holy Spirit descends. When Christ ascends, the Holy Spirit descends. To ascend means to go up. To descend means to come down. Jesus going up to heaven means the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven. So Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. Why is this hopeful? Acts 2.33, Acts 2.33, Peter says during the first Christian sermon, he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That is an awesome truth. Another way to think of it is the way that Jesus says it in John 16, 7. John 16, 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. You hear what he's saying? Um, One pastor on the East Coast, uh, I appreciate, says it this way. uh, The Holy Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. If that weren't true, then John 16, 7 means nothing. The Holy Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. More on this in two weeks when we study what it means to believe in the Holy Spirit and live in His presence, but we know and enjoy this much. When Christ ascends, the Holy Spirit descends. Second reason that Christ's ascension is hope-giving is that He is our High Priest. Our statement of faith confesses this. Jesus is our high priest. 
Why is this hopeful? This is hugely hopeful for a Christian. The book of Hebrews says that Christ appeared as a high priest and he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. The point is this, that on the road to perfection with Jesus, which will take our entire lives, we still stand in massive need for someone to go to bat before God for us in our sin. It is not if we sin, but when we sin. For every one of us sins, except he who had no sin. That is Jesus. And this Jesus is the one whose death on the cross is sufficient to cleanse us afresh this morning. Jesus is today our great high priest. Isn't that hope-giving? Finally, the third reason Christ's ascension is hope-giving. So we have the Holy Spirit coming down as Jesus goes up. Jesus, before God, is our great high priest. Lastly, he's our advocate. See that in the statement of faith? Advocate. We believe that Jesus is our advocate. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, we need a high priest. That much is plain. But according to 1 John 2.1, in Jesus, we also have a defense attorney. That's what the word advocate means in context, a defense attorney. Perhaps you remember this in our study of 1 John chapter 2 back in the spring. In Satan, we have an enemy who accuses us ruthlessly, ceaselessly, night and day before the throne of God. And in Jesus, we have an advocate, a defense attorney, one who makes his own case for us, not based on our lives, but based on his, his perfect life and sacrificial death for us. That's hope-giving, friends. That's good news. Well, let's sum up. We believe that the gospel is made known supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. Why do we believe it? Three reasons. Christ's incarnation and conception illustrate the wonder of the gospel. Christ's crucifixion and resurrection reveal the heart of the gospel. Christ's perfection and ascension announce the hope of the gospel. Both the hope of our perfection one day and the ongoing cleansing that he offers us in his high priestly work as well as his advocacy, his defense attorney work for us. Next week, we move from the person of Christ to the work of Christ, from who he is to us to what he's done for us, from the manifestation of the gospel to the accomplishment of the gospel. We'll pick it up then. Right now, let's pray.